Welcome to the Highly Sensitive Healing Podcast, where we meet the joys and challenges of our sensitivity with open minds and hearts to awaken our best highly sensitive selves. Welcome my highly sensitive friends, Tanya here. We hear lots of chatter about how yoga is good for our mental health, but sometimes the details about this general recommendation can be fuzzy, and very often we either don't know where to start, or what classes we should take, or what we should even look for in a teacher. There are many types of yoga and many different kinds of teachers. But the practice of yoga has many facets and offerings, and one size definitely does not fit all, especially if we're seeking yoga as a tool to help our high sensitivity. Today our guest is yoga teacher and Reiki healer Cindy Beers. Cindy is an experienced teacher who specializes in yoga therapy for veterans, healing trauma through yoga, yoga and meditation for military sexual trauma, compassion fatigue, accessible yoga, and so much more. As an armed services veteran and trauma survivor herself, she creates a place for people of all ages and body types to practice yoga and meditation in a safe, inviting, and authentic environment. Her published works include Mindful Yoga for Teen Anxiety and Mindful Yoga for Adult Anxiety. Anne Cindy is currently working on her next book, Yoga for Mental Health, and created the professional development training Mindful Yoga for Anxiety, Depression, PTSD, and Stress. So today we're talking with Cindy about yoga and the benefits for our mental health. Hi, Cindy. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Good to be with you. And today we're going to talk about yoga and mental health. And can you tell me a little bit about how you found yoga or did it find you? Well, that's a really good question. And um, so I've been doing yoga for probably about 20 plus years. And I was always a student, never thought about being a teacher or anything. Um, And I started doing yoga because I have really bad PTSD. And I also have anxiety that goes with it, which kind of that goes hand in hand. So, um, and I started doing yoga for helping that because I was having some really bad health problems. And what I didn't realize is how much it was going to impact my life. So when uh, I was approached to become a teacher, uh, I thought, you know, yeah, I could definitely make a difference. So since you deal with yoga and mental health as a yoga teacher, that's your primary focus. What do you think one of the biggest challenges are that we're facing concerning mental health today? Maybe some of the stigmas and things like that. Well, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, there There are still stigmas out there about anxiety, depression, trauma, and stress. Um, complex PTSD, uh, dissociative identity disorder, all of them carry with them a stigma. And, you know, we were, you know, as a child growing up in the 60s, you know, you didn't share those things. Those are things you kept private, but we need to make these things more profound. We need to make these things more public because 
we need to understand what people are going through. My anxiety is going to be different than your anxiety, but it's still the same thing. It's still anxiety. And employers need to know if, you know, if you have anxiety, because like, let's just say if you're working at McDonald's and they want you on the cash register and you have social anxiety, it could be traumatizing even more if you don't say something. So there's still stigmas out there. People have this idea, well, nobody needs to know this. And I'm the first one to tell you, I never shared with anybody that I had PTSD, but I I hid it in silence. But now you can't shut me up. I will tell people because I want people to realize why I am why I am. And people that are working those jobs like at McDonald's and, and they have anxiety, they need to tell their employers, look, I have social anxiety. Working at the cash register is really not going not to be good for me. And that way, it's not a, such a traumatizing event. So why do you think that this might be a little bit too expansive, but why do you think that there's such a difference between the view of physical health and mental health. Because, you know, if we, oh, I broke my leg, you know, I can't come into work today at McDonald's versus I have social anxiety. You know, what are maybe one or two tools that people could use to kind of express that? So maybe somebody would, would understand. And, you know, that's a really good question. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with if people don't see something wrong, they don't think there's anything wrong. And let me give you a good example. I have, because I was real, you know, I, I have fibromyalgia. I had chronic fatigue and there was times when I couldn't walk. So I have a handicap sticker and, you know, we just passed it over to my husband right now because he has an issue. But um, I had a lady come up to me in a parking lot and demanded to see my card because she didn't believe I had. I, and I said to her, not all disabilities can be seen. And she just said, well, if you can't see it, then there must not be a disability. Well, that's not necessarily true. When you look at the mental health, you know, if your mental health is bad, you have a disability. Just, you know, people with depression, especially now that we've changed seasons and we have seasonal effectiveness coming to play now, and it's even going to be coming into bigger play when we get the time change, but you can't see depression. You can't see PTSD. You can't see anxiety. You can't see dissociative identity disorder. These are things you can't see, but people have these issues that are literally a disability because you can't see it doesn't necessarily mean there's nothing wrong. And because it's in your head that mental, you know, like, you know, pretty much all, you know, all mental illnesses start in your head, but, you know, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And we've been conditioned as humans since the beginning of time up until this day and age now that we don't talk about these things. We don't consider them a disability. We don't consider them an, an, an issue because we can't see it. But in terms, in real life terms, they are a problem. There are, there are things that hold us back. Like, give me a good example. I have a client that is afraid to leave her house. That's a disability. She wants to be able to walk and go outside and go for walks and go to the store, but she's too petrified. 
that's an issue. People that can't get out of bed because they're depressed. It's a disability. It's an issue. These are things we need to be talking about. These are things we need to be petitioning Congress for so we can get more monies for research and help. And so do you think that's just one of the best ways that we can kind of uh, destigmatize it or one of the tools that we can use is to just talk about it, just start talking about it. It's not the dirty little secret, right? That, you know, we used to keep locked in the attic, um, you know, Jane Eyre, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> the and wife in the attic. <laughs> we do need to talk about it. We do need it in our churches. We do need it in our politics. We need people to be aware. Um, I'm going to give you a great example. Um, in um, in the religion of Scientology, they don't believe in psychologists. They don't believe in mental illness. And that's a shame. That's a huge shame because we need to have our ministers, we need to have our lay people prepared if they have a parishioner that comes up and says, I have a problem. Even with alcoholism, we need to have that, the, you know, the politicians and the religious leaders aware of what to look for so they can help their parishioners or help their, help their constituents even more. Because they're trusted community leaders. Exactly. If we're not sharing the knowledge that we have a problem, then there's a problem in our society. And we've had this problem since forever. You know, you didn't, I remember, you know, growing up, you didn't even say the word cancer in your house because, you know, you didn't talk about that stuff. So what's the difference between having a severe illness and a severe mental illness. There's nothing different. One you can see, one you can't. So when you first started teaching yoga, transitioning from, well, as a yoga teacher, we're always students, right? That never changes. But when you started uh, transitioning to a teacher focusing on mental health, what's something that was more challenging than you expected? Teenagers. Really? Okay. Teenagers are the toughest because Again, they're conditioned to not say anything. So when I I, I started working with teenagers on mental health, a lot of them, well, I don't know why I'm here. My mom just said I need to be here. Okay. So as we would get talking and they would, some would hear what the other people were saying, then they would start chiming in. You know, teenagers are probably teenagers and little kids are hard because they don't know how to express themselves, especially the younger they are. They don't know how to express themselves because they, you know, you have these kids that are quote unquote acting out. They're trying to get your attention and everything. Well, the reason is, is because they have anxiety. They have something going on that they need your attention. If you have a kid that doesn't want to get on the bus because they don't want to go to school and they used to love school, something's going on. And teenagers are the same way. They're learning how to express themselves, but they still lack that capability of expressing themselves. And as they get older, they start learning that concept. So having them understand the differences between social anxiety and test anxiety or driving anxiety is really key because a lot of these teens have these issues and they're not talking about it with anybody. They're, they're afraid that their teachers will get fired if they don't do well in the standardized testing. They're afraid that their 
their peers will make fun of them if, if they get up and talk. And these are things that we need to be talking about with our teens these days. You know, as a, as a child of the 60s and 70s, we didn't have these things in place. You know, we were just told, get over it and just do it. But we need these support systems in place for our teenagers, especially in schools. Um, not all schools have mental health counselors. You know, not all schools have uh, counselors that are that are able to help these kids mentally. We need to have these in the schools now, especially because of shootings, bomb threats, bullying, social media issues. We need to have this in schools. And a lot of those things that you're describing <laughs> to me don't sound very different from a lot of the things that we go through as adults either. So what do you think the difference is, or is there really that much of a difference between being a teenager and feeling all those things and being an adult and never learning how to um, maybe express yourself or get the help that you need? How does that transition as adults? That's, you know, I, I think back to the war-torn countries, you know, children growing up seeing bombs go off and shootings and things like that. And look back at World War II, a lot of these and, and the kids that were in the concentration camps, they grew up strong and they grew up well, but at the same time, they always had those fears and anxieties in the back of their head. Now, when we are working with war and torn companies, um, uh, countries, the United Nations has put into place that when they build these um, uh, camps for the folks that are leaving their countries, they have psychologists to help them go forward. And it's the same concept as, as high schools. And a lot of people are going to disagree with me here, but when you're a teenager and we're talking, and I'm going to start with the age of 10 up to 17, 18, 19, they're, they're mentally not prepared to become adults anymore. You know, so we need to have these things in place for kids that are, that are, experiencing these things. You know, um, my daughter is a teacher um, down in Florida. And last week they had a, um, a shooting threat, meaning that there was a threat going around that someone was going to come up and shoot this, shoot up the school. So the FBI was called in. So the FBI had to deal with the teachers and the students. And how does, how do you think as a a 15-year-old kid going into school and seeing all the SWAT team and FBI agents in your school, how unsafe that feels. And they can't grasp the concept of understanding what's going on and the fear of being shut up. They're not ready for that yet. You know, back during the Civil War, kids as young as nine could join the regiments, whether they start out as a drummer or they start out in infantry. How do you think that that, you know, scarred them for the rest of their lives? So we got to we've got to be working with our teens. We've got to be working around the world, not just the United States, around the world to help raise teenagers and children that are mentally prepared for our society. 
Yeah. And we can't just, we can't just be told, right. That you're safe. We have to actually experience the feeling of being safe for it to make, to make a change. Right. When you go in the military now, you can go in when you're 17 and depending on the job that you have, you could be going into infantry or whatever. If you're not prepared to go into a war-torn country, whether you're aiding them medically or protecting them, that could be scarring on a young person. And that changes the whole direction of your life. I mean, I was sexually assaulted at 19 years old when I was in the military and I got shot at and I got hit. You know, I, I was married to an abuser that shaped the entire course of my entire life. So we need to be having things in, in, you know, ready, holistic things that we can teach these kids to help keep them from falling off the deep end like I did. Yeah, a plate programs in place, or at least resources that they know that they can reach out to. Exactly. And I'm so grateful for um, uh, uh, organizations like um, Mental Health America, National Association of Mental Illness, uh, the American Mental Wellness Association for bringing those things to the forefront and helping people lead semi-normal lives you know, working with teens, working with kids and going out there, you know, it's, it's, you know, especially, you know, when we have even natural disasters can be really detrimental to children and having those support systems with their parents and working through it is really important. Yeah. It's vital. It's vital to our survival as a human race and for the planet too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't, I'm, I'm all for Um, modern medicine. Modern medicine is fantastic. But, you know, just teaching people holistic ways to help themselves, for me, is my number one goal in life. You know, yes, you can, you can take, you know, uh, the medication that the doctor prescribes, but let's add to it. It can't be just the meds to make you feel better. What about adding a, a meditation practice or just listening to music to calm yourself down? Or, emotional freedom technique or tapping or havening, all these things. There's so many things out there that are holistic that can help you. Just the mere fact of laying down, putting on headphones or not, and just listening to calming music can be so beneficial to someone. I think that's a really common misconception too, is that Eastern and Western medicine somehow have to be in competition of each other. You have to choose one or the other that they can't be complimentary and they absolutely are complimentary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would love to see medical doctors say, okay, well, I'm going to give you these, this antidepressant, but how about I refer you to this person that can teach you some other great habits to help you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not just medicating. Right. So speaking of that, so as a yoga teacher, what's a commonly held belief about yoga that you really maybe even passionately disagree with? What's something (laughs) there's, I'm sure there's more than one, but (laughs) your top three. (laughs) Biggest one is um, people see yoga as a cult. Now it can be, 
there are cults out there that have the term yoga in it. Okay. They are out there, but it's, it's not all like that. There's people like you, people like me that believe in the holistic things that, that yoga can do that can do it. Um, where I live, it's a pretty conservative area. And I've, I worked for five years to try to get into the high schools to teach teens how to handle stress and how to do yoga. Their parents won't allow them. It's a cult. Go to the gym if you feel like you're stressed out. So that's the biggest misconception I see about yoga. The second one is people saying, I can't, I can't do yoga because I have this. Mm-hmm. And I cry, I cry BS on that. It doesn't, you know, whether you're incapacitated, laying in bed, missing a limb, can't hear, can't see, um, you, you know, you have a, a severe, you know, illness like chronic pain. It doesn't matter. You can still do yoga. If you can breathe, you can do yoga. Yeah. And you, because, you know, we're sold, right? This picture of what we think yoga is supposed to be, which is, you know, a, you know, a 20 year old, you know, five foot 10, 100 pound gymnast, you know, (laughs) on a beach. Yeah. (laughs) And Tahiti. Yeah. And there are those out there. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I will be the first to tell you that I am not the skinny little blonde person that, that can do every pose because I can't, you know, I'm coming up on 60. Um, I can do a lot of poses, but I only do the ones that my body allows me to do. And I don't go over that. You know, um, the, the one pose that really, um, really gets me all the time is, is people doing like scorpion pose. And for those of you that don't know what that is, you're down on your elbows and your hands are on the floor and you bring your legs up like you're doing a headstand or a handstand and then you bend your knees. So, I mean, can I do it? Probably with help, but do I want to do it? No. Yep. <laughs> no. And, and, and it's just doing what your body allows you to do. Um, I had a really good discussion about this with um, a pretty famous uh, yoga teacher that focuses on um, pain management. And one of the misconceptions that he talks about is yoga teachers saying, if it hurts, don't do it. While I agree with that, if it just hurts a little, it's okay because your body's just learning how to get get used to this new feeling. But if it hurts a lot to the point that you can't breathe, yeah, there's something wrong with it. So yoga teachers need to get away from that. If it hurts, don't do it. And just saying, okay, try it. If it's overwhelming, yeah, it's okay. Don't do it. But if it's just like a little Ow, try it. Yeah, there's a line between pain and discomfort, right? Right. Yeah. So wanting to know, you know, and only you know that. So yeah, yeah. I think discomfort is definitely, you know, we all need to be a little bit more uncomfortable with a lot of things, I think. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the benefits, uh, you know, just in general to practicing yoga for our mental health, um, you know, for people that are new to yoga and want to practice, but, you know, they hear kind of all the, 
you know, it's good for relaxation or it's good for this or it's good for that. But what are some of the specific benefits to practicing for our mental health? Well, that's a really good question. The first thing I would say is if, if, if someone says to you, go try yoga, it's going to help you shop around, shop around to find the right person that's going to fit you find your, you know, for your personality and for your body, because not every yoga teacher is the same. You know, you might have one that wants to do a whole heavy duty vinyasa flow. Great. If that's what you want, knock yourself out. If you want one that's gentle, go find that. But you want to find what's going to work for you. So that's the first place. First thing. Second thing, if you're looking for someone that is you're doing, if you're working with mental health and you're trying to help your own mental health, find someone that is well-versed in dealing with mental health and yoga. Um, I do run a teacher training for uh, mental health yoga. So I know that there's at least 150 um, yoga teachers out there that are understanding of that. There's also trauma-informed teachers that know how to work with trauma. Um, With the program that I teach, they learn that too. So, you know, you, you have to find, if you're working with your mental health, find someone that is going to fit your needs. That's the biggest thing. So when you're looking at a yoga practice itself, it doesn't, it, again, it goes back to what you want out of a yoga practice. Like just say, all you want to do is sit and breathe. Well, there's that. You can find someone that does breathing yoga and breathing for, for mental health. Very common. If you want movement, Find a movement class that is going to work with what you want. If you can't get on the ground, find a chair yoga class. If you're one of these people that is an amputee, find someone that knows how to deal with amputees. So it's so, you know, with yoga these days, it's so refined that you can find the right person for your needs. Now, granted, if you're living in a rural area and there's not a lot of yoga teachers, well, guess what? We have this absolutely amazing ability to find (laughs) yoga online now, you know, and uh, I I credit uh, the pandemic for really bringing that to light because it's really something that is wonderful that's out there. So, so, um, I'll be launching in January 1st, the Mental Health Yoga and Wellness Online Studio, which you're going to be a part of. Yes, and, ma'am. And, and what's going to be good about that is that there's, so, there's going to be so many different classes for people, whether it's chair, whether you're a bigger bodied person, whether you just want to lay there and breathe, whether you just want to relax, there's going to be so much. There's going to be restorative yoga, chair yoga, larger body yoga. There's so much out there that we're going to have that's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. And and maybe in uh, in a couple of months, you can come back and we can talk more about that, more about what's going to be on it and all the different offerings and stuff like that. That would be fantastic. Absolutely. So do you think that there are any, besides, you know, finding finding the teacher that's right for you and you know, not just walking into a yoga class or watching one or two things online and that person, that teacher's not for you. And then just kind of saying, oh, well then yoga is not for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are any drawbacks to practicing 
yoga for mental health? No, anybody can benefit from it. Okay. Um, whether you're in good mental health or not, anybody could feel good walking into a mental health yoga practice and walk out feeling even better. Yeah. And because, you know, if you are going to a class that's yoga for mental health or trauma-informed yoga, you know, there's a, the teacher typically will let you know, you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable, right, then you can just stop. Or if you're feeling this, you know, it's okay to feel this as opposed to just kind of trying to mimic or imitate what you think other people are doing in the class. Right. Right. And, and one of the things about yoga that's really important, and this is where online yoga really comes into play and helps out. So often people will be in the class and they'll see someone doing something absolutely remarkable that they can't do and they feel inadequate. So what I suggest is stop paying attention to everybody around you and focus on yourself because you're on that island of your yoga mat. That's your island. And you want to make sure that you stay on your island and, and just focus on you. And, and I always use the analogy, when you go on vacation, you're not focusing on everybody around you. You're focusing on you. You're focusing on relaxing and having a good time. And that's the same with the yoga class. Relax and have a good time. Don't pay attention to the other people. Focus on yourself and go inward. And, 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 and look at it as an observation of, and discovery of finding you. And, you know, going to a yoga class in person is great, but I think that one of the great things about, you know, doing yoga online is that, you know, you can, you roll out of bed or you can still be in bed, right. And you're in your pajamas or not pajamas, whatever you want to be in, in your living room with your cat. And, you know, you can just practice and it's just you and the teacher. And I think that that, you know, has a lot of benefits to it. Oh, absolutely. And I love the fact of doing yoga from home, you know, with an online teacher, because it, to me, it makes it more personal, you know, and a lot of times I feel like the teacher's just talking to me. Mm hmm. No, and because, you know, especially when I do an online yoga class, I make sure I don't, I, I tell everybody to turn off their video, turn off, you know, mute themselves just so they're focusing on themselves, mm-hmm. you know, not looking at the screen, just focusing on themselves. Yeah. And that's how we need to be when we're face to face. Yeah. I think that's a great practice. Mm-hmm. And so what types of yoga? So, you know, there's so many different practices of yoga, like you've mentioned, you know, obviously there's the physical practice that most of us are familiar with pranayama, which is breathing practices, meditation, mindfulness. What do you think are some great practices for highly sensitive people, uh, you know, specifically, and maybe if they're new to yoga or they're not familiar or, you know, what, what kind of practices do you think a highly sensitive person might benefit from most? And that's a good question. I'm glad you're asking that. I would say to start out with a gentle yoga practice, just a nice gentle practice that's going to just lead them in and allow them to just get used to movement or breath 
or both. And then once they start getting used to this movement and breath and they start seeing, hey, this is actually feeling pretty good. And if they want to take it to that next level, then they can. But I would definitely start out with something gentle. And if that and if gentle is too much, then they can go to restorative. So I love gentle because it's nice. It's a nice stepping stone. You know, if it's too much, then they can go down. If it's not enough, then they can go up. So it has it, it has a nice feel to it. It's a good entry point. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and something that you know everyone can benefit from. Uh huh. Absolutely. So, what do you think? What do you think? There's something that everyone in the yoga industry should stop or stop start or stop doing, um, just kind of in general when it comes to. Well, when it comes to mental health, do you think that there's anything that just in general, the yoga industry should stop doing? Shaming. Um, um, I've run into many teachers that don't know how to handle people that have, that are in crisis, that, that, that have anxiety or, or some sort of mental issue, or they're highly sensitive, as you said, um, there's a lot of shaming because they don't understand it. So therefore it's not in their line of sight. They, well, you just need to get over that. No, no, you just don't drop one day and say, okay, I'm over it. You can't. Um, I think every yoga teacher out there needs to learn how to hold space for their community instead of walking in, doing a class and leaving. They need to learn how to hold space to, with their community, how to listen, how to talk to them if they find out that they're, there's something wrong. You know, I, I'll, I'll, and, and I, I'll be the first to tell you, when I first started teaching, I was one of those t- people because I didn't understand. I knew my problems. I just didn't know how to handle other people. And what changed me what, and I was teaching at a local Navy base. I was teaching for the Navy. And for some reason, this one day I was going super slow, focusing on breathing and just literally making a, making it a gentle class, which for that, for that time, it was really challenging for them because they'd never, they wanted hard, fast, sweaty, but I took it slow that day. And I don't know why I did something did. And there was a gentleman in the class who I could see he was struggling. So I made sure that I, even though he was just the one person I noticed, I made sure that I wanted to make him feel included. And that was another thing, you know, inclusiveness for everybody. So at the end of class, I went up and I thanked him for coming. I said, he did great. I was so proud of him for being here. And this is where my whole life changed as far as a yoga teacher. He said, you changed my life because I was thinking about killing myself when I left today. Wow. And it was the most profound thing that ever happened to me. And, and I said, well, what about the yoga practice made you change your mind? And he said, you listened to me. Now, granted, I didn't talk to him the whole time at all. So something in that went in 
because I'm always using affirmations. I'm always using positive terms and something in that stoked him. And after that, he started seeing a psychologist and started getting better. I'm hoping now he's doing well. You know, I haven't seen him since I left the Navy base, but you know, yoga teachers need to be inclusive whether it has to do with race, religion, mental health, doesn't matter. They need to be inclusive and hold space with their, with their community and, and, and listen to their community. It's just not going in and making $25 an hour and walking out. It's more than that now. COVID has changed that. People need to be heard and that's the number one thing I, I think that's for yoga teachers is to be, you know, listen, hold space and let people be heard. It's a big responsibility. I think a lot of people don't really, re- well, I mean, I guess oh, if you take it to be, a, you know, a big responsibility, but I do. Yeah. And I, obviously you do, but, you know, to, because when you practice yoga, whether it's, you know like I said, the physical practice or breathing or whatever, you go to a place of, you know, vulnerability. And I think that's what a lot of people don't necessarily realize about the practice is that, you know, it really does, you know, you, you go inward and you really, that's the whole practice, right? You go, you're going inward, you're looking at yourself, getting to know your real self without all of these masks, if you want to call them these things that we go through. And so there's a lot of responsibility when you're helping people to get to that point. Right. And, and, and you're absolutely right. And, you know, people, when you're going, okay, for people that don't understand this, becoming a yoga teacher, first of all, takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, any 200 hour yoga teacher will tell you that it's a lot of money. Like your 200 hour teacher training is at least 32 to $4,000, you know, and once you get that, there's, there's more you have to do. You have to do continuing education. You have to have at least 30 continuing education credits for a year. You have to, you know, make sure that you stay current with your, with your uh, continuing education. Then if you think about it, you could be a 300 hour teacher trainer, which is get puts you at the 500 hour level. And that's another $5,000, so five to $7,000. So, you know, we invest a lot of money in our training and, you know, granted, there are those yoga teachers out there that go to a weekend training and say, oh, I'm a yoga teacher. And I cry BS on that one big time. Mm-hmm. Um, I went. But, I went to Mexico for a week, and now I now I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> right, and and that bothers me. Because, yeah, it should. Because first of all, they don't know how to hold space with their people. Second of all, they don't know the safety. You know, and that's the one of the biggest things for me when I teach 200 hour and 300 hour is safety, because as a yoga teacher, you could barely easily hurt somebody. I, when I first started teaching, I was mortified. It was like my second class teaching and this lady's arms went out and she went down and broke her nose. And I was so mortified because I just, I, at first my teacher training was just like 
a teacher just, I'm just watching her. Mm-hmm. That was my teacher training. And I'm like, no, can't do, you know, so I, I went out and found a teacher to teach me that was part of Yoga Alliance. So when you're looking for a yoga teacher, make sure that you're getting one and this might be biased and, and I'll probably catch flag for it. But you want to make sure you're looking at their credentials. Make sure they're going through a 200-hour training. If they're Yoga Alliance uh, members, that's even better because then you know that they're going through the safety procedures and understanding it. So, you know, it's really important to do your due diligence when it comes to finding a yoga teacher. Yeah, and another thing, too, is, you know, when you're in a yoga class, obviously online it's different. But, you know, if you're in a yoga class and the teacher is – kind of having their, what, what I call their own practice. Right. And they're not looking at you saying, you know, Oh, Cindy, you know, maybe, you know, turn your hips this way, or, you know, Tanya, lift your, you know, lift your arms or, you know, if they're just kind of in their own space, right. Then they're not holding space for you, as you said. Right. Yeah. So that's something is also to be you know, just kind of aware of when you walk into a yoga class. It also might not be a bad idea if you're going to an in-person yoga class to just go and observe a class first. Exactly. And that I always encourage people, if they're thinking about doing yoga, come sit and watch a class and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. See if what that teacher is teaching resonates with you. Right. Right. And if they're a good teacher, they'll come back and say, what questions do you have? What can I, you know, how about if we try something? you know, mm-hmm. and see if it works. Yeah, that's very true. So what's giving you hope for us right now, just in anything in the space of mental health in the space of yoga and the space of both? You know, that's a really good question. The one thing we ha- need to have more than anything right now is hope. You know, I know, I know what I do is important. I don't know what it is, but it gets me up in the morning and it makes me passionate about what I do every day. It's this inner gnawing that I have that makes me continue on for doing what I do. And that gives me hope that I can help people. And that's my driving force is, is helping. I, I, I want to help you have a better life. I can't, I can't do it for you but I can hand you some tools that can help. And, and my hope is that people will hear my words and realize that they need someone to talk to. I have been seeing a psychologist for 15 years. My psych, he's a guy, but he's the best paid girlfriend I've ever had. <laughs> and, 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 and there's something about just going in there, sitting down with someone who has no bias, no judgment, and you can sit there and talk until you're blue in the face for a whole hour and stand up and go, okay, I feel better and walk out. And it's like you leave everything there and you're good to go. You know, the things that gnaw, gnaw at you and anger you, you could sit there and you could tell this person these things and they can give you hints. Or they'll just listen. And once you're done, you're like, okay, I feel good now. I can go forward again. So my hope is that people stop hiding 
that they have these issues and come forward. Yes, I have PTSD. I have anxiety. Has it been something that has plagued me my, for the majority of my adult life? Yeah, but you know what? It doesn't hold me back. It drives me to make people more aware of how things like this happen to people like me, even good people like me, and, and, and how we move forward from it. A lot of people get stuck. They get stuck in that quagmire of crap that goes on in, in, in between your ears, and, and they can't get past it. What I hope is they get past this. They go find someone that can help them so they can move forward. It's really hard for people that have persistent depressive disorder to move forward. But I encourage them to go talk to someone to move forward. People with dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple personalities, I encourage them to go talk to somebody so they can move forward, so they can lead good lives, so they can lead, lead good lives that they want to have. And that they, and that they deserve to have. Absolutely. Everybody deserves mm-hmm. that. But sometimes again, what's in between the ears gets in the way. Absolutely. It does. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll put some, I'll put some resources in the show notes as well for some of the places that you've, that you mentioned earlier. So oh, people, true. you know, um, yeah. will have something, you know, concrete if they want to reach out and to have somebody to talk to. So you mentioned that you're working on a mental health and yoga channel online that launches in January. Are you working on anything else that you'd like to share? Uh, gosh, doing teacher trainings all over the United States these days. Um, uh, with COVID, it's a little tough to get into Europe. So um, we're waiting till 2023 to be in Europe, and I'm already scheduling that far out. Yeah. Um, We'll be doing online, we will be doing a lot of master classes for people for anxiety, depression, trauma, and stress. Um, and, uh, and we're doing gentle yoga practices. Next month, uh, let me see here, next month, it's uh, November 3rd, we will be doing an online mental health yoga practice that's gentle that anybody can be a part of. And I even encourage yoga teachers to jump in and observe and take notes so they can see how it's, how it's done. Now, when we do a nice gentle practice, it's all about movement and breath. We take our time, we breathe, we work with every part of the body and we have fun. We laugh, which laughter is always good. And, and, and just, just enjoy learning. That's all. And holding space. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. If you want to give me the, um, the information for that, I'll include that um, in the uh, resources and as well at the, in the show notes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. (laughs) I think it was fabulous. All right. Thank you so much, Cindy. As HSPs, too often we can feel isolated and misunderstood, and this can leave us feeling lonely and can affect our self-esteem and how we view ourselves and our place in the world. Researchers are just beginning to understand more about how yoga benefits our mental health, and it can help us to regulate our emotions. But our path to healing is unique, so finding the right teacher and practice for us is paramount. 
Seek out practices that feel supportive, but that also challenge you at times to go deeper. Because we're highly sensitive, we need yoga teachers and others that we turn to in these healing spaces to understand or at the very least be curious and supportive of our unique needs as highly sensitive people. So if you're interested in trying yoga at the physical practice or for the first time, or if you've tried meditation and mindfulness before, but you didn't feel supported or seen as an HSP, or if the teacher or the guide wasn't holding a nurturing space for you, don't give up on the search. There are teachers out there like me and Cindy who know the challenges that we face and who have made it their mission in life to support highly sensitive people. You'll find all the info on Cindy and her work, as well as the resources that she mentioned in the show notes. And I'm also really excited to announce that our 40-day Highly Sensitive Healing Challenge begins November 1st. So we're going to do four healing practices, just 40 minutes a day for 40 days. The challenge is completely free, and it's all happening inside the Highly Sensitive Healing Circle community. You'll find the link for that in the show notes. Remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends. Be sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the good stuff, and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for spending time with me here on the Highly Sensitive Healing Podcast. New episodes are released Wednesdays, and please feel free to reach out with any questions or comments. And never forget, we were given this highly sensitive life because we're strong enough to live it.